Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Um, we are continuing in our study of the book of Vayikra. We're continuing to study um, the book of Leviticus. Um, and this week I'm bringing you um, a commentary on um, the Parsha by my classmate. So it's always a wonderful thing when I'm looking through um, different um, commentaries, when you find your colleague and classmate uh, published. That's a wonderful thing. So we are in Parsha Behar. It is a double portion. It is um, Behar Bechukotai. And all these Parshiot that are read together or apart, they are generally read together because we only pull them apart when there's a leap year. So when we add an extra month, a second Adar, every so often to rectify the lunar calendar so that Pesach doesn't end up in the winter, when we do that, we add four Shabbatot, right? We add a month, so we add four Shabbatot that we need a Torah portion for. We need four more Torah portions, so we split all of them so that it covers an extra month. Bahar Bechukotai is one of those. So uh, we are going to read... Um, chapter 25 uh, together of Parshat Behar. We are in uh, the society of ancient Israel in the ancient Near East, where uh, one's wealth was generally uh, a result of agriculture, that uh, when you are a semi-nomadic pastoralist, you don't really collect a lot because you're moving around all the time. Once we have cities and once we have people settled and they become settled farmers, then your wealth is in your agricultural produce that is surplus. So what you don't need to feed your family, you then can sell. And so that becomes your, your disposable wealth. So that, that is the society that is writing these rules and these laws um, for themselves. All right, so, so we, this is placed at Har Sinai, at, at, at the mountain of Sinai, and God says to Moshe that Moshe should speak to the Israelite people and say, When you come to the land that I'm going to give you, When you come to the land that I'm about to uh, give you, the land shall observe a Shabbat Ladonai to Yudhei all right, so this is interesting because this is not saying you Israel, this is not a command to the Israelites, which is interesting, right? It's letting the Israelites know that the land is going to observe Shabbat. So kind of a weird construction, but also an incredibly powerful, I think, literary tool for saying this is not really about y'all. This is about the land, for real, for real. Now, that means that has implications for the Israelites and has implications for what they're allowed to do vis-a-vis the land. But it's interesting to me that the land, it, it's not about saying to the Israelites, okay, stop working the land. It's that the, the, the Aretz itself will have a Shabbat for Yotev Sheshanim Tizras Sadecha. So this is the implications for the Israelites. That means that six years you can sow your field and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, And we got, remember, we got this language, Shabbat Shabbaton, when we talked about Yom Kippur. 
So this is like an, an emphasis on this idea of Shabbat, Shabbat Shabbaton. It will be a Shabbat of complete Shabbating. Um, for the rest, a Shabbat of yud you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. So you can eat, though, whatever the land produces on its own. So you are allowed to eat of the land that year, but it has to be uncultivated. So it's what the earth brings forth itself without the, uh, I don't want to say invasion, that sounds too hard, without the manipulation of human beings. That's what, that's what you're allowed to eat. You and who else? Your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you. Everyone's allowed to eat from, so essentially it takes landed Israelites and makes them equal to people who don't have land every seven years. Because every seven years, it doesn't matter if you have land. It doesn't matter. You, all anybody can eat is what the earth brings forth itself. And so everybody in that sense is equal in terms of what they have and what they have access to. And your cattle and the beasts in your land may eat all its yield. Again, stuff that you do not farm. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives you a total of 49 years. So we're counting the Omer right now between Passover and Shavuot, seven sets of seven days, so seven weeks. And now we're getting, in this chapter in Bahar, we get the description of counting seven sets of seven years, so that you come to the end of that, you come to year 49, what's going to happen then? What's going to happen at the end of the 49 years? You're going to blow a truah on the shofar. When? The seventh month on the 10th day of the month. Well, we know something about that because we just had that in a parsha, right? A few weeks ago. And what was that? That was the... Uh, ordinance of Yom Kippur. So it is on Yom Kippur that you will sound a truah on the shofar in the 49th year. Okay, but it goes on. What's that about? So the 50th year is kadosh, is set aside, is designated as holy. And what are you going to do? Ukratem dror ba'aretz l'choyushveha yovelhi tiyelachem. You will proclaim dror. Uh, you will proclaim release throughout the land by blowing this shofar, essentially, and all its inhabitants. Right, l'choyushveha to all its inhabitants. It shall be for you yovel. Um, and here you get the the Latin form of Yovel, right? The the Y is a J, 
and a vet is always rendered as a bet. So without, so adding the dagesh, so the vet becomes a B. And so that's what Jubilee is. It's Yovel. So it's Yovel for you. Each of you shall return to his holding and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be Yovel for you. You shall not sow, neither shall you reap the aftergrowth or harvest the untrimmed vines. For it is Yovel. Ki Yovel he, Kodesh, Kodesh ti Yelachem. It's, it's Kodesh, it's holy. You may only eat the growth direct from the field. So you can't, you can't mess with anything to increase the yield or to have nature do something different than it would do on its own. Bishnata Yovel Hazot, Tashuvu Ish El Achuzato. And in this year of Yovel, each of you shall return to your ancestral holding. When you sell property to your neighbor or buy any from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. How do, how do we ensure against wronging one another? In buying from your neighbor, you will deduct only for the number of years since the Yovel. And in selling to you, he shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. The more such years, the higher the price you pay. The fewer such years, the lower the price. For what he is selling you is a number of harvests. Do not wrong one another, but fear Yudhevafe your God. I am Yudhevafe your God. You shall observe my laws and faithfully keep my rules that you may live upon the land in security. The land shall yield its fruit and you shall eat your fill and you shall live upon it in security. And should you ask, what are we to eat in the seventh year if we may neither sow nor gather in our crops? I will ordain my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it shall yield a crop sufficient for three years. And when you sow in the eighth year, you will still be eating old grain of that crop. You will be eating the old until the ninth year, until its crops come in. But the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. Right? So scholars want to argue about this, of course, like they do about everything. But you are strangers and residents with me. Throughout the land that you hold, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So the word geulah, redemption, geulah titnul aret. You will give redemption to the land, literally in the Hebrew. Um, this is a new idea, as far as we know, in the ancient world about what redeeming land looks like. And we'll talk, we'll unpack it a little bit more. All right, so let's stop there um, because then we're going to go on to another category of stuff um, in the text. All right, so uh, here we are at Yovel. Here we are at this concept of the Jubilee. And the Jubilee is a way of resetting the the playing field, right? So those of us who've studied this together before know that this is ancient Israel's attempt at economic justice and about setting an expectation that land ownership cannot ever be permanent. It can't ever be forever because the land doesn't belong to human beings. By definition, the land belongs to God. If you buy that there's a creator, then 
the, the, what gets created belongs ultimately to the creator. And so in ancient Israel, it was understood that the land belonged to God. What you got was usage rights to the land. You got the right to harvest crops and to live off the yield of the land. So you got to use the land, but you don't own the land. But it's a little more complicated because when you say the land goes back to its ans- your ancestral holdings, who are they talking about, right? If it's going to revert to somebody, well, then somebody owns it. So it's this kind of – it's not a pure concept that says it only belongs to God. It belongs to God, but God assigned land to the tribes, according to our sacred mythology. God attributes and assigns land to the tribes when they come into uh, – Israel. And so therefore the original ancestral holders of the land are, it's the assignation to each tribe. So even though this is a system that is trying to implement some kind of economic justice in terms of resetting so that people don't remain in poverty or on, you know, in terrible straits forever, they get to go back to their tribal lands Remember that different tribes had different land and different tribes had different size allotments of land. So tribes that would have had arable, amazing, fertile soil would have grown stuff and would have had through all the years that they did well, they would have had all that accumulated wealth. They don't have to give that back, right? So if they've done really well on their land, that, that is an inequity that's going to remain in the system. And another inequity that remains in the system is that it goes back to tribal holdings so that there, there's, there's whatever that original understanding of those assignments were, that, that's forever. That inequity is forever. Dr. Tamar K. Minkowski, in her uh, commentary that you know I've been working from this year, um, she says, you know, the other one that we have to ask about is what about women? So what if it's a widow who holds the land, uh, and then here comes, you know, Yova. I mean, so what? Ha- and what happens physically to those people, right? Do do they do they remain on the land, and now they just can work it, or do or do, do they get kicked off the land? And if they get kicked off the land, where do they go? Um, and we're going to see that as an issue with um, this next part when people um, become impoverished and they lose their right to the land. Um, because they have to, they have to take care of their debts. Then what happens to them? Torah does not answer those questions. So scholars are left to argue whether or not they believe that these become tenant farmers, and the debtor stays on the land, but it now belongs to the creditor, and they work the land for the creditor and to pay off their debt. Or are they kicked off the land, and then they are landless and homeless and um, it's hard to believe that that's a system of, <laughs> in any way, rectifying um, economic uh, inequality. So we have some questions um, that Torah does not answer for us. Um, but this idea that the Yovel should be a time of resetting uh, ha- what has happened in our own uh, contemporary time, uh, that we saw um, Jubilee 2000, was a project of trying to um, really have the wealthier uh, 
countries in the world do a program of debt forgiveness for the most poor countries in the world. Why was it called Jubilee 2000, right? It's called Yovil because it's saying, let's go back to the biblical idea that there should be a way to reset, reset the system so that those who have lost um, by the rules as they are, we, we reset so that they have an opportunity um, to experience relief from their uh, suffering and a release from their um, situation. And they can, they have an opportunity anyway to, to change their fortunes. Okay. Jody, I see that your hand is up. Oh uh, yeah. And it was reminding me that Jubilee 2000 was, I think Bono led that. <laughs> but, um, it reminds me a lot of land lease. You know, the, the land just doesn't belong to you. We still have land lease where maybe for um, ancient tribes, but not particularly Jewish tribes, but in Native America, you can have land lease. And so, so it just reminded me um, a lot of that. I wanted to bring that up. Okay, thank you. Um, right. So this is this is a concept that is understood. This is not something so foreign. Um, what's interesting is that this long ago, ancient Israel was trying to address the inequalities that its neighbors often understood as being divinely ordained um, and and that you were stuck with it. If you were poor, it's because you were born poor. And that was kind of think about America. Think about slavery. Right. Think about all the defenses that the haves have used against the have nots right? That's your lot in life. You know, it was your destiny to, to be poor. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people have chosen, of course, to have that worldview because it allows the people who have material wealth, and usually that's connected with power, um, it, it, it allows them to maintain their status and maintain their power and maintain control, right, over the society uh, and, and the inequities inherent in that society. So for me, um, you know, a lot of people get all caught up in the details of, well, was this really implemented? If it was, well, again, what happens with women? What happens with people who are kids? And like, I get it that that's really interesting for a lot of people. And you know me that sometimes that's really interesting for me too to like dig into the text and try to find evidence and argue this way or that way. With Yovel and with Shemitah, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't really care because... I don't know if it was ever implemented and if it ever really happened. I don't care. What I care about is that our people canonized this text, that our people for 2,000 years have looked at this as the ideal. So whether it ever worked or ever was put in place or wasn't, doesn't matter to me so much as it does that our, our people, the Jewish people, have understood for thousands of years that, that the, the goal is to have an attitude about wealth and to have an attitude about land. And when your wealth is tied directly to the land, it's the same thing that we've had an attitude that says it's not permanent. You may have a lot today, but who knows what happens tomorrow in terms of a drought, in terms of whatever you may lose your access to that land and it's never yours permanently. Nothing really belongs to you permanently when it comes to the planet because it belongs to God. It belongs to itself. And I think that is a radical attitude. And I think um, what my, my, my classmate Fred Dobb, what you're going to see with Rabbi Dobb, is he's, you know, he's like, that, that is a worldview 
that is different from ancient Israel's neighbors. And I think right now it's different from how we think in the West and how we have thought in the West. I mean, I hope we're coming out of some of that. But, but that idea that your relationship to your wealth is permanent somehow, that, you're, that you deserve it somehow, that it's yours by right somehow, uh, Torah challenges that worldview and says, no, it belongs to itself. It all belongs to God. All right, Kayla asked a question in the chat. You, you can get something, baby. Um, she's crawling on the kitchen floor so to be below the camera. Um, so the, Kayla asked a question about what, what is the significance of seven? Seven is the number of completion. Exactly. That's the significance of seven. Seven is the number of completion. So if seven's the number of completion, then seven sets of seven is the ultimate completion, Right. And so the year, the year just passed, the ultimate completion is the year of hitting the reset button. 49 years is completion. Year 50, you blow shofar on Yom Kippur and dror is proclaimed throughout the land. Release is proclaimed throughout the land. All right. Um, anything else about this? All right, seeing no hand. Oh, uh, aren't we not supposed to blow the shofar on Yom Kippur? On Yovel, you are. Ah, so that, that's the one exception. Well, no. There, you can do whatever you want. No, I mean, like, there's nothing about shofar and Yom Kippur. There's nothing about shofar and Rosh Hashanah. There's Yom Tru'ah, the day you have to blow shofar, which is so that you're letting everyone know the month of Yom Kippur's uh, happening is starting. But you can blow it anytime, right? There's no, you're, you're thinking halachically, you're thinking rabbinically. Stop that. But we're, we're in Torah. <laughs> in Torah, blow it whenever you want. You have to blow it on Yom Tru'ah. And on the 40, not, and, and on Yovel, you have to blow it on Yom Kippur so everyone knows that this is Yovel. All right, Pam? This text always makes me feel that maybe uh, it was divinely inspired in that I can't imagine, even if they have figured out we need, the land needs to rest on occasion. It's like, I can't imagine a human being uh, saying, let's all do it at the same time. It's just like divide your field into seven sections and one out of seven years, a different section every year lies fallow. Um, so, you know, why do we all have to do it at the same time? It makes no sense to me. that, it, And uh, we have to also depend that the year before we get, twice as much or for enough for three years. So, uh, you know, that's like, what human would write that? Okay. What's your um, take on that? Yeah, because what I would say is if anybody's going to do it, the only way you can probably get everybody to do it is that everybody does it at the same time. How, How do you get everyone to say, I'm sorry for all the wrongs I've done to you? You pick a day where everybody's going to do it. If everybody's doing it, I'm not the only one. I'm not an outlier, right? Why would I go without? Absolutely not. That is not fair. So in some ways, the only way you can ensure that it's going to happen is that everybody does it. 
and everybody does it at the same time. Otherwise, it's not fair. Who's going who's gonna to volunteer to be it this year? The one who doesn't right, gain from their um, agricultural holdings. It, okay. It still could be one-seventh of the field every year. But everybody would have to do it, or else why would I do it? Right? Like, so, but that's not how they decided to do it. Right? They, they decided to to do it a different way. All right. So uh, I'm being asked in the chat, is there an example of returning the land in modern times? Is there some other interpretation of this requirement that does happen? So, I mean, I think, you know, land is such an incredibly important issue in so many places. Um, And by the way, particularly for women, um, access to land is the difference between being able to feed your family and not. This is when we see in Africa, we see um, on purpose a lot of unrest being caused so that the population has to move around so that women don't have access to their ancestral lands. Um, That keeps them insecure and impoverished. So in all these places where there's lots of these minerals and, and, and wonderful things that we use in our cell phones, um, that's, that's how they do it is that they detach, they cause enough civil unrest that families are um, now not attached to their land and then someone can come in and poach, right? And, and take it. Um, And it keeps the population um, insecure, food insecure, as well as, you know, the uh, acquiring resources. So land ownership in many places is still the difference between life and death. It is still the way, and, and sometimes that's arable land that the community shares, who has access to that, and to forests, right? So in places where women do not have access, women heads of household do not have access to the forest or arable public land and have no you know, land of their own, though it's a really dire situation for, for those women and children. I mean, that's from Dr. Kaminkowski, by the way. She has a discussion about that in this chapter on Bihar. Um, and so, so David's question is to, I think, you know, like, how do we deal with agricultural inequity? If land is your wealth, and in many places, like I said, in many places in the world, it still is, um, then h- how do you deal with inequity? Is there a way to reset that, right? And so I think that that's a huge issue. And, and I don't think we do a very good job, frankly. Are there instances of it? Of course. I mean, if you look at tribal lands in the United States, you know, if you look at other places where um, land is traded, you know, back to people, you know, country lines, you know, just drawing lines around countries, borders around country is about land, right? Like we made up a bunch of countries. Like after big world wars, we make up countries, What does that mean? We assign land to certain populations and call it a country. And they laugh at us, and then they have to live with the consequences of us throwing a bunch of people together who traditionally didn't have anything to do with each other. (laughs) And then we wonder that there's incredible tension and strife, and then we do something brilliant like remove the power person in the neighborhood and wonder that it all falls apart because of infight. Right, so... So I think our relationship to land is still really complicated and who decides who owns the land and who decides who has access to land and its wealth. The wealthy countries, the ones who won the war, that's who decides. 
Um, so yes, David, I think there are lots of examples of, you know, who, of land being redistributed. And it's a question of who, who wins that argument. Like, wait a minute, you took, look at Israel. <laughs> you took land from us, say the Palestinians. You took our land, right? And Jews go, well, nuh-uh, it got taken from us before that. We have an older claim to the land, right? It goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, and so, yes, it, it, is, it is a contemporary issue all over the world. Um, and it's really how we negotiate power and how we negotiate wealth. Uh, and it's a real problem right now. Um, I think the other real problem, so first of all, is the inequities involved in a system where who decides that's one thing um, that's a real problem. But the other real issue is we now believe that we, and have for a long time, we, we don't believe like Torah. We don't believe the land belongs to itself and deserves a rest. That it gets a Shabbat all by itself because that is divinely ordained and the land belongs to God. We've lost that. And for a long time have treated the earth as if it belongs to us and that we get to do whatever we want with it and to it. And because of that, we are in dire straits. We are in a bad, bad way. I was watching, I'm just having so much trouble sleeping and, and whatever, and, and I'm exhausted, but I'm too tired to sleep, that kind of thing. And so I, I was watching, okay, National Geographic last night for some reason it was on. And it was, you know, talking about winter and like, it's just so depressing, right? That when you see, you know, <laughs> whole species are going to are wiped out, you know, because we are treating the world in a way that there's no ice for them anymore. Right. And so watching that, I was like, I was so aware that the, the, the land and the cycles of nature and life on this planet have their own wisdom and have their own, if you want to call it holy divine order that we have screwed up so badly that it may not recover. There's a possibility it won't recover. And if so, it's going to take a really, really long time and it'll be too late for many species, right? Um, and that's because of our hubris and our, and our moving away from this idea that's thousands of years old, which is what I think is so astonishing to me whenever I encounter it, that this is so old. Our people have been, have been orienting themselves to, to this way of thinking for a really long time. And of course we get away from it because Jews own as much land as anybody. Um, so, you know, we've moved away from it. Unfortunately, we've been influenced by other things outside of Torah, but, but it's amazing to me that within Torah, there's this knowledge, this understanding, this understanding that that is the, the proper order of the universe is that the land belongs to itself and it needs a break. And it has nothing to do with what we want that, that it is, it is its relationship to itself and to um, whatever is bigger. Okay. So let's look. <laughs> Kayla loves Nat Geo. Okay. Good to know. I'm not the only one who winds up watching this stuff. All right. So um, let me go back to the texts. So in this system, if you have land and your wealth comes from land, then bad things can happen, right? If your kinsman, so achicha, the word brother, if your ach, your brother, is in straits and has to sell part of his holding 
His nearest Goal, his redeemer, will come and redeem what his kinsman has sold. So if someone related to you is in such dire straits uh, because of crop failure or, or they have a gambling problem, whatever, and they, they now have to sell their part of their land, if you are a wealthy relative, you are supposed to come buy that land back for them, right? So you are supposed to be the redeemer, the goal. If a man has no one to redeem for him, but prospers and acquires enough to redeem with, he shall compute the years since its sale, remember from Yovel, refund the difference to the man to whom he sold it and return to his holding. So this is how you can buy back your land. If he lacks sufficient means to recover it, what he sold shall remain with the purchaser until Yovel. In, in the year of Yovel, it shall be released and he shall return to his holding. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, it may be redeemed until a year has elapsed since its sale. The redemption period shall be a year, right? So if you have to sell your house in the Palisades, you have a year to buy it back. So it's not a permanent sale until a year. And even then it's not permanent because we got Yovo. If it's not redeemed before a full year has elapsed, the house in the walled city shall pass to the purchaser Beyond reclaimed throughout the ages, it shall, oh, it should not, it shall not be released in Yobel. Yobel is about land. All right, so then we get houses in cities with no walls. Then we get um, the Levites because, right, they're, they're dependent. They have no land. Um, so we see stuff dealing with them. Um, if your kinsman being in straits comes under your authority and you hold him as though a resident alien, let him live by your side. There are lots of people who argue about the interpretation and the translation of this verse. So we're not sure exactly which way to translate all of this. Um, does he come? Does he become your kinsman who's in straits? Does this person become a ger toshav? Does this person become the same status as a resident alien, and lives with you the way a resident alien does, right? So that they live with you, they work the land, but they're not owners anymore of the land. Their status changes to ger v'toshav, or is it how the, the English is rendered here? They become like a ger toshav. Because they don't have land holdings anymore, they're now having to work um, for somebody else, right? If that happens, do not exact from him advance or accrued interest, but fear your God. Let him live by your side as your kinsman. Do not lend him your money at advanced interest or give him your food at accrued interest. I am Yudhe your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. So here we get this understanding of um, that there are inequities built into just the luck of whether someone's crops fail, right? So, there, so that somebody could come into dire straits. And, and I think Torah here is interested uh, in protecting their dignity, so that even if somebody becomes the, the equivalent of a resident alien, you, you have to treat them a certain way because you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Don't think you're so different. 
So now if you're somebody who, you know, you're wealthy and you have a lot of power and you have land and you have security and you have whatever and your relatives have to come work on your land because they've lost theirs for whatever reason, you, you don't think you're different fundamentally. This is your ach. This is your brother. So you are you were slaves. <laughs> I brought you out of Egypt. You would still be there. You'd all be slaves if it weren't for me, says God, right, in this, uh, in this part of the Parsha. So don't get all high and mighty that you have and this person doesn't, and so you get to somehow lord that over them. All of you were slaves, and you're still slaves to me. And don't forget it. And so be careful how you treat uh, one another. All right, so, so this, comes to the, this brings us to the end of Leviticus 25. Um, Dr. Kaminkowski points out that th- this whole chapter, in talking about all of these laws and all of these rules, the chapter never uses the term justice or righteousness. Never, right? So interesting that it's not like you, you will pursue justice and therefore you will do this. You will be righteous, therefore you will do this. Nothing like that. The land gets a rest because it's the land. And I got ordained that, that it has a rest for itself every seven years. And y'all were all slaves. So don't be thinking, you know, you get to be something, you know, that you are fundamentally different from the person who now uh, is living on your land and working for you. And so she says Leviticus 25 does reveal an awareness of the complex relationship among people, animals, the produce of the land, and the land itself. So it's a sophisticated understanding um, for, for, for its time and for the neighborhood uh, of the world that it's in. I want to go to my, my colleague, uh, Fred Dobb. So Rabbi Fred Dobb says... Can a rarely practiced piece of Torah, dormant for most of the common era, help us weather the novel coronavirus crisis? He argues, yes. Shemitah can. So Shemitah is the seventh year. And a fresh look at this biblical practice offers guidance for other challenges of our time too. So then he goes through um, describing what Shemitah is uh, and that it uh, collapsed with the destruction of the second temple as anything that was uh, enforceable or done. Um, and he says across the liberal Jewish world where the spirit of Torah carries greater weight than the letter of the law, meaning again, who cares if it was actually done when it stopped Shemitah is now emerging as a North star teaching, a directional goal, a moral and spiritual compass. It's teachings and implications address ecological sustainability, social justice, spiritual renewal, communal resilience, and more. The goal is not to restore a straight-up seventh-year sabbatical, but to embed Shemitah consciousness into our communal and individual lives and thus enrich them. So he's saying, you know, like, kind of like I did, like it, it's about a, a way of looking at the world and that he believes that Shemitah consciousness, this idea of every seven years, um, that, 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 is a, that is a helpful way to see uh, reality, a helpful way to see so many things, including our relationship to, um, you know, the land, you know, to the planet, to other people, um, to our own spiritual renewal. So he's going to go into how, how does he see it applying? All right. So how does it help with the spread of COVID-19? 
He says, the power of small intentional communities. This is one part of Shemitah consciousness. We never know when new flus will appear, but we do know that they will. Shemitah consciousness entails being ready for anything, including epidemics. In a society prepared for disruption and downshifting every seven years, small is beautiful. People really know each other and interdependence is celebrated. Synagogues and chaburot are at their best, modern exemplars of these timeless virtues, the very virtues modeled by federated agencies and taught through Jewish educational institutions. With every new virulent disease, recession, natural disaster, or other black swan event, the worth of intentional communities like ours is proved again and again. So for me, what he's ta- I think what he's talking about is Shemitah consciousness says we're going to take care of each other. And I might have a lot right now, but in seven years, right, um, I, I know that I'd, it's not all permanent, that we're going to downshift and I might have to give up something. And I'm giving that up because I'm part of a larger community. And my commitment is to the larger community and to some kind of understanding of equity within that community. And that right now, and I think it's true, I think a lot of us are saying we feel really lucky that we're part of this community right now. That, you know, there's 51 of you who chose to be here this morning and who value coming together and to being part of something. Um, And I think right now, a lot of us are aware that, thank God we have this. Um, It really makes a difference about how we're handling and holding, right, this this incredibly scary thing that's happening to everybody. Well, when you have a small and intentional community, you're not in it alone. And that that's a certain kind of consciousness that 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 Shemitah system, right, is is evidence of. What what else? How else does it help? relevance through resilience, right? So Jewish communities have always, you know, um, had to be be, uh, people who are ones of resilience. He says, living with Shemitah consciousness as if another large, huge speed bump always lies ahead, forces us to build resilience into the very fabric of our lives and institutions. That same consciousness will help our communities weather any coming changes, from social distancing to fewer or no Oneg Shabbat Shabbat and Kiddush luncheons to live streaming instead of sitting in shul and much more. So that if you already build in that there's going to be terrible things that happen, you build in the capacity for resilience, right? Like we are so resistant to change. And I remember I was going to write a whole big sermon about this. I never did, but I was going to write a huge sermon about at, at high holidays about why are we so, we, why are we so uh, afraid of change? And we are. We're resistant and afraid so often of change. We are so resistant. We want everything to be like it always was. And it just, it isn't ever. We're in a new body that, today than we were yesterday. Um, we, we're in a you know, new season, we're at a new place, we're in a new consciousness. It's always different. It's always changing. But we are so resistant to that. And I think what Fred is lifting up here is if you build in the sense that you never know what's coming, you never know what's ahead, you, you just have, um, you know, you're, I think of, you know, an infant, you know, you have to hold an infant with bent knees and be ready to move in any direction at any moment, right? Depending on what that infant needs or does. And um, that there's a way that we can build that into our attitude and our philosophy and our understanding of the world as a people. 
is that we just don't ever know and it's always going to change and we have to be ready for that and keep our knees bent and relaxed and be ready to move in whatever uh, direction we need to go. And right now, like we've been talking a lot about the Jewish world and about participation in synagogues and our synagogues are going to go away. The model might change um, after the 21st century. For sure, it's going to have to change. And part of the question is how resilient are we ready to be? How flexible are we ready to be? And um, I think he's right that building in a consciousness that says we just don't know what tomorrow brings, not in a terrible way of doom and gloom, but in a way that says, so let's be ready Let's be ready to meet right the the challenge that we know is coming because we're human and we live in 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 this world. Um, the other thing he says is it it, it fights uh, that shmita fights against an attitude of shmita fights against the idea of hoarding. Right, so all these people who are hoarding toilet paper, right, that comes out of I deserve to have safety and security and not give up anything, um, and that you know particularly in stressful times, you know, hoarding doesn't help. It just makes it worse. Um, but if, if we understand that there is no real private property, um, then, you know, it, it, the, this is an attitude that, that pushes back against our very human um, tendency to hoard. Special concern for underprivileged communities, right? That Judaism's tradition of pursuing justice is exemplified, he says, in Shemitah's concern uh, for the gear and the servant, as, as we get it described in the Parsha, that, that they need to be taken care of um, and that people can fall on times where they go from, you know, privileged landed Israelite to living the life essentially of a socially disadvantaged uh, orphan or widow. Um, and then he points to tens of millions of Americans remain un or underinsured and billions around the world struggle with inadequate resources. Um, and so long as some people can't or won't seek diagnosis and treatment, no one is safe from the spread of the disease. So that Shemitah is talking to us, you know, at this time of COVID, um, saying as long as there is built-in inequity, <laughs> like you think it's not going to affect you at some point, wake up, people. Thinking long-term, right? So in, if you think in seven-year cycles, then it mandates long-range planning, which some of us are terrible at. What is it about Americans and how much we've saved and how much we've saved for retirement? If you look at it, it's terrible. And for some people, it's because they can't do that. They're trying to put food on the table. But for a lot of people, it's because we just don't have this way of looking long range. It's not built in. We're told, get the new one today. You need the new iPhone. You need the new purse. You need the new car. You need a better vacation. You need that right now. And it's all about right now. And not about long-range planning and that Shemitah, even talking in the language of a cycle of seven years, much less a cycle of seven times seven, is just a different way um, of relating to the material world, which certainly we could use. Um, enjoy the break, he says, right? An, an enforced sabbatical. We're all being given in some ways, um, and enforce sabbatical right now. Although I was studying with my Hebrew partner who brought this up, like, you know, that Shemitah directly connects to uh, COVID-19 and pandemic. But it's a perfect Parsha because it's talking about, you know, you don't get to choose it. You're forced to uh, be in a Shemitah and a Shabbat relationship to the land and to work. Um, and that, uh, that it's the perfect Torah portion. And I was like, ugh, please. I don't think so. No, nice try. Um, so Fred's going there too. 
I'm a little less cranky today, so maybe I'll be a little open to it. But um, because I think for some of us, yes, it has been a forced stop. And people are saying, I'm loving being home. I'm loving being with my partner. I'm loving that we're getting so much done. We're getting closets cleaned out and organized and stuff I never would have done had I not been forced into this stoppage and forced to be home. Blah, 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 blah. Lovely. That's terrific. Some of us (laughs) are working harder than ever. Some of us are experiencing a lot of stress from the fact that our office is now our home and there's zero line between work and off time. There is zero line. The Shabbat that used to be built in is gone for some of us. So, so I, I want to, from a non-cranky standpoint, say, um, sh- yes, it's Shemitah. It's a forced stop. And yes, of course, I've enjoyed being with my family and, and being with my 16-year-old. And that's been amazing. Um, but it's also really, really, really stressful for a lot of people right now who are having to work through this thing. People who have two little kids at home and they're on Zoom meetings all day. Both parents are home working on Zoom with two little kids. Like, are you kidding me? It is so stressful. It is so hard. So um, what, what is a forced stoppage and spiritual learning opportunity and growth opportunity for many people? I, I totally honor and get that. And I, I just want to also say that for a lot of people, um, a forced stop of how it used to be is not just a break. Um, it's also, you know, causing its own level of, of stress and burnout and exhaustion. And Shelly, you'll be glad to know I've scheduled vacation. So all of you, thank you for your concern. Those of you who were worried about me on Wednesday night, <laughs> it's all good. It's going to be okay. Um, so I needed to schedule a break. And if they don't stop working on this roof, though, there's going there's to be, be problems. All right. So I see Jody's hand is up. Um, Jody, do you want to say something? Uh, I have a question. In, in Israel, do some of the people, all of the people, maybe just some of, some of the people, none of the people, give the land a break? So there, there is an awareness yeah. of the Yovel year in Israel. Some um, communities, some you know, um, very observant communities are really trying to push for a relationship back to that idea of Shemitah, of giving the year you're giving the, the land a break. But, but, but to my point to Pam earlier, if everybody's not going to do it, right. why am I going to do it? Right. When, why should I give up, you know, selling my, you know, garbanzo beans to Sabra to make hummus? Why would I not take the profit from that when everybody else is going to be profiting that year? So, so it, meaning it, it hasn't caught on. Because whoever decides to do that has to do it out of a deeply religious commitment to right. this divine will, because otherwise there's no incentive. There's only disincentives for you to do it because everybody else is still profiting. So it's, it hasn't caught on is the answer. Okay. <laughs> right. It's not gaining popularity. I, I do think there's an, a, a, an awareness ecologically that the earth needs a break from our consumption right? There's a lot of that awareness in Israel and also a huge lack of awareness uh, in Israel. The Kinneret is more filthy than I've ever seen it. It's so depressing when I see the state of the Kinneret, the, the, um, what's it called? The Sea of Galilee. You know, it's a lake and it's horrifying um, what's happening. So it's, um, yeah, it's devastating. 
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.